Someone asked me recently, what is the coolest part of my job as CEO at Clear Motor Marketing? I said, well, that's easy. The fact that every day I get to dig into our clients' businesses to learn not only what makes it tick, but what we can do as their partner to deliver the marketing that truly matters to their business. It's like being in a living, breathing case study every day. And for that, I am truly blessed. Hello, Collisions YYC listeners. It was an overwhelming sense of pride that I wanted to share with you that the marketing agency that I had the pleasure of co-founding and leading is turning 15 years old. Yes, their motive marketing is 15. I want to shout out a huge thank you to all of our clients, past and present, as well as our vendors and all of the incredible team members we've worked with over the years to make this milestone possible. Check us out at clearmotive.ca to learn more about what we can do that matters to you. Hello and welcome to Collisions YYC Follow the Money, Investing with Purpose, a show where we have real conversations with the people who are driving change in our community. I'm happy to have my guest on today who's out there doing the thing and going to talk to us about it. Mr. Scott Kaplanis. How are you doing, Scott? I'm good. Thanks. I like that. Doing the thing. <laughs> He's doing the... You know what? If you want to find out what's really going on, I don't, I'll don't. i skip the headlines. I'll just go to the people that are actually doing the thing. <laughs> Scott, like you it. are a partner at Groundbreak Ventures. So let's not... Let's not mess around too much. Let's let the audience in on Groundbreak. Let's jump in the old elevator. What's Groundbreak all about? What do you guys do? What do you invest in? And uh, what's your world look like day to day? Sure. Yeah. So we're a prop tech focused VC. We're based out of Toronto. Property technology, for those that don't know the sort of short form. Nice. Um, We define property technology very widely for um, our investment thesis. So anything to do with how you live and work falls within our mandate. We're early stage investors. Uh, again, for those familiar with venture, that means pre-seed to Series A for a first check, two or more checks into a company as they grow. Uh, been around for almost five years. Over that time frame, we've been the most active prop tech investor in Canada. Um, and we're currently deploying out of our first fund. We've done 29 transactions over that time, 10 in Canada, 14 in the US, five in Europe. That's our geographic footprint. And we are currently working on a fund two, which is, uh, I guess, focusing a little bit more on what we call healthy home innovation. Um, And that fund we are doing in partnership with Drew and Jonathan Scott of the Property Brothers, for those of you who are HGTV fans, (laughs) um, very big influencers, obviously, in the home renovation and home building space. And the idea is to kind of marry up some of their influencer channels, their uh, B2C experience with our traditional B2C or B2B venture experience uh, and really be the go to firm for anyone that's tackling the reimagining of the home as sustainable, affordable, adaptive and connected. Um, Scott, I'm not gonna lie. It feels like you've been in this elevator once or twice before. That was a pretty succinct. Uh, <laughs> but, okay, we're just gonna now unpack everything you said and turn it into a podcast episode. Great. Um, so define most active, most number of deals, biggest like m- not just number of checks written, which I guess kind of correlates. What what is what what falls under most active? Yeah, so we define most active as most deals. Um, okay. And to your point about doing things, I, we we've <laughs> always wanted to be known as the fund that is rolling up its sleeves and getting out there and and being active solving problems, failing quickly, helping entrepreneurs, uh, and building a name for ourselves in the market. So we define it as most active. We're not the largest fund out there. We're investing at a $25 million US fund, which is a nice size for pre-seed to A, um, but we're looking to scale up for the next fund to a a larger fund size. Interesting. Okay. So, and you said 29, 29 transactions over a Correct. period of five years for fun. If you've got the number, you seem, you seem like a guy who might have the numbers. How many, <laughs> um, how many dates did you have to go on to get to 29 deals? Well, <laughs> so we have a, we have a very active CRM. I got to think there's probably 
five or six hundred companies in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a whole pile of companies, I would say, that didn't make it into our CRM. So I got to think we're probably close to a thousand names that we've at least said hello to over the last five years in that order. That's a real, yeah, I, I would have guessed just by the X times this equals equals that. How many people on, how many people on your team? Like just to paint the picture on just the level of activity. And I want to use the word churn because it's not the right word, but you, the old joke, you got to kiss a lot of frogs. And I don't know if that applies here. Ver, you know, I've heard that a lot said in the PE space, but I'm sure it's even more so in venture cap. Uh, how many, what's your team? And is this like literally on the side of somebody's desk all the time is looking at deal flow? Yeah. So I'll give you a weird answer. I'd say there's probably two and a half. Okay. Um, okay. Myself and my partner, we're, we're based in Toronto um, and we use a, a, a very fantastic resource uh, who was going to school at MIT, moved back to Istanbul. So he's been living there for the last two years and mm. he's sort of helping part time with the fund as well for deal flow generation and for tapping into the network that we have in Europe. Um, and we're mm. small and mighty in the sense that we're really trying to be as flexible as we as we can. So we'll bring in consultants, we'll work with other individuals and subject matter experts when required, but we want to keep the core team tight um, until we successfully com- complete our next fundraise, and then we'll think about a, a further expansion. So lean and mean and high volume, and everybody's got a, a few different hats on their desk, yeah. just to over, it's, just it's a short We've done too much, I would say, <laughs> to be very honest with you. Yeah, yeah, it's, wor- <laughs> it's, it's working, but dot, dot, yeah, no, okay, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I got you. Um, uh, inter- interesting, 29 transactions over five years. How active, I don't know how you would have time even to, the way I think about asking this question, how active are you in supporting, like you said, you know, get in helping, you said the word helping entrepreneurs, and yeah. Again, I've met lots of different fund managers. We're different. We get in there. We get involved. There's only so much any hours in the day. So just talk yeah. to me a little bit of how you juggle and balance that out. Yeah, no, absolutely. So our philosophy really comes down to meeting the entrepreneur where they are uh, in their journey. So if we're earlier and we're kind of closer to a pre-seed investment and it touches areas that we have expertise in. So primarily that's through partnerships that we would have with a home builder, a developer, property management arm, logistics, including last mile, um, we may be more active because we can help for customer introductions. We can help uh, relay problems that we've already seen, companies that have already failed in the space for one reason or another, things that we've seen work. Um, But in some cases, we're just checks, Um, especially as you get later to more of a Series A style investment where there's another lead investor that's another VC that probably is offering their own advantages. We're not trying to be everything to everyone. So anything from very hands-on, probably at the earlier stage, to just the check, probably at the later stage, a later yeah, stage for sense. us being Series A. Um, and then, But we do do a lot of work in trying to punch above our weight in catalyzing rounds and helping rounds, syndicates come together, bringing partners around the table. I'd say that's one of the things that we're probably best at doing. So even though we're not the biggest check in around, we may have introduced the founder to the two bigger checks, as an example, to two other VCs that we worked with in the past. But we, we definitely can't do a heavy lift for every different portfolio company. And then, you know, the, the, the other thing I would say is usually you're more involved when things are challenging, <laughs> right? I mean, like when things yeah, are just yeah, going yeah. well, it's hands off, the, the founder's running with it, things are clicking, that's fantastic. That's the best case scenario. And then when you run into to to trouble to problems that's when you kind of get more involved and you know that kind of happens every so often you can't predict it and you got to be there for your founders when it does mm. uh, yeah everything's going well just stay out of the way uh, but i love just the concept of like the network and how important that is like like you said like some of our help is just opening doors introductions hey i already know somebody who's conquered this problem over here let me int- 
Is there, and I've heard this from other, uh, uh, from other fun, is it more collaborative at that earlier stage than you would see is maybe more competitive at later stages? And I mean, later beyond series A, where you're looking for your network to come on board and I'll write my $200,000 check, but you might write your 500 or maybe even a 50. Is that, is that, does that purvey across Canada? I've heard about that in Western Canada, but any different in Toronto? Yeah, I think I think it is actually more collaborative earlier on because as you're passing batons to Series B and C investors, you know they're probably deploying out of funds that are measured in one, two, three, four hundred million dollars, and there are only so many of those opportunities, um, and they have to write bigger checks to deploy their fund rounds. And so I think at those stages it gets more competitive. I think earlier on, you know, a lot of people are going to in the seed world or the pre-seed world, they're probably going to invest across, you know, 30 to 50 names in their fund. And they're not going to be they don't want to be in there alone um, and they don't need to hog the puck for their their allocations. Yeah, simply put. And I think that exists in Canada and the U.S. It's certainly a little bit more collaborative from what we've seen so far in Canada. And partly just because it's a smaller ecosystem, especially in the prop tech space, like, you know, everyone you've had drinks with everyone. Uh, you generally want to be helpful, and there are very few early stage funds that want to own the whole thing. Yeah, interesting. You said you have fourteen deals in the U.S. and ten in Canada. Was that the right math? And then five yeah. kind of overseas. Someone told me this recently, and I, I'm just I'm repeating, and I'm, I'm also fact checking kind of your perspective that you know s- different activity levels in the U.S. at the seed round. Simply, his his thesis was nine years to get your money back as an average Canadian early stage investor versus three years in the U S and those numbers hold together. I haven't fact checked it. So you're my, you're my fact check. I heard oh, it yesterday. Three, I'm repeating it today. In, I, I mean, my fact check experience, like three years in the U S at C doesn't compute to me. No. Okay. Okay. No, that's, well, that's too short. Yeah. Too short. It still is. I think, I a think bit of a longer... that I've seen done in this across North America at the seed stage, you're talking about probably pushing seven years on average. On and average. I'm guessing okay. right now um, that's going to lengthen out. Yeah, let, yeah, let's talk. Let's talk about the change in the climate. From you guys have been in this for five years, a few years back. Well, during COVID, like prop tech, it's, that's when that word started to get even on my radar. When all of a sudden, like, oh, prop tech, this, and we're changing, and we're not, we're not, you know, talking about the home builder industry just that as it was a one off. Oh, we're going to do virtual tours. We're not going to go to show homes anymore. Yeah. Has that leveled out? And kind of wh- where is that? You know, just maybe talk about prop tech, but also talk this talk about the cycle of money in the last kind of three years in the early stage, how it's shifted. Yeah, and what's kind of funny, like I did a presentation recently for our LP base where it's kind of like, here's a timeline of what we've done, deals in different in different uh, geographies, here's the accelerator we started, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, so here's the linear line. And, and this is kind of what it felt like. Boom. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know if anyone can see that. No, that, that was, for, for, for those visually impaired, since this is an audio-only podcast, <laughs> okay. that was a straight up, uh, one would refer to as a hockey stick, and then I believe it was a cliff, Followed by maybe a W uh, rebound. I don't know. There's a few different yeah. acronyms we can use there, but it was it yeah. was not a straight line in any way, shape, or form. No, a series of straight like, lines that some went up and went, some went down. <laughs> yeah, it was it was lofty valuations followed by the depths of COVID. What are we doing with real estate in general? Followed by complete yeah. euphoria, zero money, free money for everything. Valuations <laughs> that haven't been seen for probably 30 years, and then no money again, which leads into answering your I think your current question, which is how's the environment? And and look, it's it's challenging. Um, there was a lot of capital that was raised in the VC space between 2018 and 2021. Um, and as those funds go to raise their second and third, or they're re-upping with their LPs, their LPs are looking at their allocations and saying, yeah, I got a lot of this venture thing right now. 
I'm not so sure. Maybe they're dragging their feet. Maybe their allocations will be lower. And so capital creation across the stream, across the um, the life cycle of a company is going to slow down. And we've seen that. And um, that's just the, it's just the state of being. And certainly in our space, you also have um, another aspect, which is we're going to ebb and flow based upon general sentiment in the real estate space. Mm-hmm. What do you in, in that space? Obviously, I'm in, I'm in Alberta, so I'm in Calgary and we've got a super hot market here right now. And it feels like it's never going to, but I've been on this journey before. I've been living in Calgary since 2000. So I've, I've seen this roller coaster happen and, you know, just simply supply. Like, was it 1,235 single family homes available for a market that should have five for 6,000? That's going to take a while to run itself out. What are you guys seeing across the country? Like, obviously, Vancouver and Toronto, I know, had some, some, some definitely corrections off some pretty hot markets for many, many years. How's that ebbing and flowing just from your, uh, your, your, your ringside seat? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, look from a residential perspective. Yeah, there's a well-documented shortage of supply, and I think in Canada that number is going to vary in terms of estimates from you know one to three million homes today. With that problem only getting worse because we can't keep up with the current pace um, needed for backfilling that supply today. So there is a housing shortage. Uh, that is true. How severe it is, I think, depends on who you ask. Uh, there's definitely a housing, there's housing challenges to, in terms of how that supply is distributed. So there's been a lot of talk about affordability. And that's a very big challenge, especially for all the major cities in Canada. Um, and certainly relative to a lot of the second tier cities in the U.S., affordability is a real issue here. Um, it's becoming increasingly an issue in the U.S. as well. And that's both for people that have ambitions of owning and renters. I think now it's like, of your rental dollar on average or 40% of your income on average is now going to rent, which is just a a very high number historically. Um, So we don't have enough supply. It's difficult to build, uh, difficult to get things permitted, labor costs for building and material costs for building over the last four or so years are up 56%, which is just a wild number when you think about it. Um, so when you think yeah, about any business, then your input costs have gone up fifty six percent. Like just apply right. it to any environment; it's it's almost well, it just doesn't work anymore. It breaks the right. whole thing. It right? doesn't work anymore. And so, yeah, yeah. you know, well, part of the thesis is in, in the residential space, we have to do things differently. We have to do things better. We have to use technology. We have to be creative mm. um, because, at least for the foreseeable future, those aren't those costs are not going to come back down. They may stabilize, but they're not going to. But they're not back coming down. back down fifty seven percent. And unfortunately, I mean, one of the, the the areas of strength, which is exciting, actually, is um, the Alberta market, right? Mm-hmm. On on a relative basis, it's a great place to be. Calgary is a great city, um, and it's much more affordable than other places in Canada. So it's attracting population migration, and there's land, so you can build. And the regulatory environment is probably at least looser than some of the other areas in Canada. Okay. So it's a it's a positive uh, pocket within the Canadian market for sure. That's certainly everything I've been I've been I've been hearing. And you know, someone says you know it's often the locals that don't realize the advantageousness of their own market because their prices are going up relative to what they already know. But if you're coming from a Toronto market or Vancouver or even on the edge of Montreal, uh, which yes. is still I got some affordability, it's still a little bit more affordable than those other two markets lots of examples of people buying houses sight unseen here because I can get what for how much I'll take it done because it, even if it's bad it can it's still half the price of what I would pay in one of those other markets right mm-hmm. you touched on something which I was price pressure tough market like technology coming in to to fix that or to be put into play to 
optimize, to create some efficiency. That's got to be creating some cool activity or some deal flow for you of companies going, hey, we see the problem. I bet our version of our this mousetrap can solve that. Is that giving you more deals to look at because that pressure is driving some innovation? Or am I being too linear with my... <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think that we have noticed, anyway, more okay. deal flow as a result of those increasing needs. Okay. In part because it comes at a time when capital formation is really challenging. Yeah. So when there's money One, being thrown around... One's keeping the other in check, right? Yeah, a bit. like yeah, everyone yeah. wants to start up a business when you just walk around and someone's going to give you a million dollars to get going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's no longer the environment. So the stuff that we see, I would say, is actually slowed down. But what is exciting is that as these problems get more acute, the power of a solution will be there and then attract capital and then there will be a re-engagement with industry. So that I'm optimistic that as these problems get worse, the solution sets are going to get out there. But right now we're still in adjusting to there's less capital in the market. And are you seeing the the direct cause and effect of that, of that startups or ideas have to be a little more flushed out. They need to, it can't, you're not going to raise a million dollars off a deck. You've got to have something a little bit more substantial. You've got to show uh, the opportunity to actually make money. And I'm being a bit facetious because we've all heard the stories of like, oh, I had a PowerPoint deck with a half-baked <laughs> idea and I got money, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm assuming that, I don't think that's a bad thing that that maybe got flushed out a bit. <laughs> no, it's actually, I mean, uh, it's very healthy uh, because yeah, yeah. it was very unhealthy in 2021. Um, and so the level of diligence across Everyone that I speak to, my entire peer group has gone up. The level of de-risking, even within the venture context, that's required for yeah, yeah. an opportunity. That bar has been um, that has has been risen. So, so yes, for sure, the scrutiny is there. Basically, you can just think of it as underwriting standards have tightened across the space, uh, and probably they got way too loose. So, it's creating a more <laughs> balanced environment that looked much more like what the market felt like in sort of 2016 to 2018. Okay. Which was still constructive. Like it's not like it's not doom and gloom out there. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's still money. Yeah. People are still raising money. Rounds are getting done. Good ideas are still in high demand. Um, because mm-hmm. look, when a when a venture uh, is looking to attract capital, a lot of VCs are looking for the same thing. And as that pool gets uh, whittled down, the ones that uh, can stand out are going to attract multiple bids from the venture community that are going to get a lot of interest. So the high quality deals are still getting done. Uh, and there is still is capital creation in the market. I love that's your quote. Good ideas are still in high demand, and I think they always will be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Are you seeing like just across whether it's your sector or just in general? Obviously, your peer groups probably invest in different pockets. And if you're in the venture space, are we doing down rounds? Are we writing down like those overvaluations? Got to catch up with you, right? And that doesn't make anybody's day go well. <laughs> yeah, I think the short answer is not enough. Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. I, I would liken it a little bit probably to how I, I kind of feel about the commercial real estate space at the moment. It's a little bit of a extend and pretend out there. Um, people keeping the marks in their books and waiting for the company to eventually do a down round, but they haven't done that down round yet. So they're not adjusting the valuation until that occurs. Um, and also, I don't really feel like the environment has gotten bad enough where there's complete let's call it desperation in the market. So yeah. I, it's it's kind of not, it hasn't fleshed itself out yet. Uh, that's probably okay. how I would think about it. There's still it's one of those examples unpacking. of the, the, the stats say one thing, but the on the books somewhere, you're not getting the whole story, like whether that's yeah. vacancy, vacancy rates in commercial real estate. 
there's a lot of companies that just have leases that are have empty offices. Right? I, I know I have an I have an office like that. It's not showing up on the inventory list because I'm still paying rent, even though I won't be after a certain time. You know, like that 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 that's just one stat Correct. I know Correct. in Calgary is uh, skewed by, by by reality versus not. Uh, so curious. I guess you maybe share uh, t- to what degree of your own like point of view on this. Say, let's just say hypothetically, you've got a company in your portfolio and you know, as the investor, that a down round is imminent and that's what's going to happen. I guess navigating that, how to think about that as a founder, you know, how to think about that as an investor on how to truly partner, you know, it's still viable, but it just got evaluated at a time when things were were skewed. I guess what's a little bit of your playbook or your matrix around how you approach that? Yeah, I think the first thing I'd say is there, there tends to be the stigma in the industry around a down round. And that's a bit unfortunate because if you do have a viable business that for you know a, a secular reason or a cyclical reason, it's going through a period of time that is difficult, um, but there's a real business there and it deserves funding to continue to grow in whatever capacity it's growing, it should be okay to accept the fact that you might need to reset a little bit. Um, and yes, it's not you know, you want to do right by your investors and your investors want to do right by their LP base, et cetera. But I, I think that the stigma is a little bit too problematic. Um, at, at the end of the day, rather than spending, let's say, 12 months trying to fight for a flat round, um, hurting the staff retention during that period of time, putting them through the mental strain that might come with trying to do that funding round and then lost time for customer acquisition, et cetera. I think that really has to be weighed against like maybe your insiders want to keep supporting you and you just got to bite the bullet on a, on a lower valuation to get something done faster. And I, and I, I don't think the industry acts that way enough of the time. Hmm. Makes a lot of sense. As someone who's been in business, I'd like to say the last 15 years, it's always been up and to the right, but there's been some down years. But if I would have walked away at that point or bailed, I would have never caught the two years later when it went up beyond where I Correct. was the year prior, right? And that's as much as I would love to tell the up to the right story. That's just not how it's been. Correct. But you Correct. learn, you retool, you 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 know you 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 sharpen your pencil, whatever metaphor you want to use, and you come back better, smarter, stronger. Yeah, that's and that's interesting, yeah, because just even the term "down round," it just the term itself has a negative. It's, it doesn't sound positive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think there's that stigma from an hmm. ego perspective, from a reputation perspective, for the entrepreneur, um, and then there's worries that the entrepreneur has about dilution. So on the first one, especially in Canada, this fear of failure needs to get out of our system, right? In the U.S., people run a company, they take a shot fails. It's almost like uh, a rite of passage. There are people there ready to fund again. In Canada, I feel like the that failure lasts a lot longer, generally speaking. We have to get away from that kind of thinking. Um, so there's the reputational hit on the down round where if you take it in perspective, like, yeah, so I just have to raise money and it's at a different level. I'm still able to attract capital. And I'm still able to grow my business and employ more people. Hey, isn't that great? Um, and then there's the dilution side. Like You need your your founder, your entrepreneur to be motivated. There are many tools to create motivation, even if that equity, they don't own 30% of the company anymore, they own 10. And there are ways that you can still incent them either through option plans, bonuses, et cetera, to get them back up to a place that they feel they need to be at. And, and so it's, it's all doable, it's really just math. Um, and so I think if we could kind of handle that stigma, we'll, we'll all be in a better place as a, as a capital group. 
all the accounts and finance people just went, yeah, it's just math, people. Get your emotions out, out of the room. <laughs> if, if only we were that easily. Hey, you touched on something. Uh, the Canada versus US, is that just experience? Is that values-based? Like what drives, like there's so many differences. You can spend all day talking yeah. about that. But I love how you pulled that out of like, oh yeah, write a passage. Okay, great. But we're still ready to come forward because we know you got, you've, you've, you've got the capacity to do the, to do the next thing. Is that just kind of who we are at our core? Or am I just over like brushing that off? <laughs> yeah. I just, so first of all, I don't have any stats to back that comment up. Let's be clear. <laughs> Opinions according to Scott. I'm okay with that. that too. I'm okay with that <laughs> too, man. <laughs> I, I definitely feel it from an anecdotal perspective now over about you know nine years of venture investing, perhaps hanging on too long, perhaps not finding a soft landing for your company when a soft landing is available. So it's not the rocket ship you hoped it would be. Okay, there's a chance for an acquisition to happen. Maybe you make a little bit of money. Maybe you just find a good place for the asset to be. I feel like that happens a lot more often in the US where the entrepreneur can be honest with him or herself and say, yep, this just isn't going to work. I know I can do something else with my life. Let's find a path to exit here and we'll do the next thing. Whereas in, in the Canadian context, I've just found that entrepreneurs will, it, and there's a passion there, right? Which is, which is admirable. Um, but sometimes we'll just be, we'll hang around too long, um, not be objective enough about, hey, here's an outcome. Let's take that outcome. Let's start again because they feel like it's a failure. So I, I think it's more attitude based than I, and I can't back it up. That's just kind of what I felt over the last nine years. Yeah. Versus the reality, the second, third or fourth time you do anything, you've learned you're, you're more seasoned, like stay, keeping, staying in the game. We're actually robbing ourselves of kind yeah. of that generational or like just cycles, business, like cycles of, of learning that we've, we've all been through. If I, if I, the only people like, Oh, I could go back and be young again. Only if I can have the lessons I've already learned. Cause I don't, yeah, I don't want to go through <laughs> yeah, that again. Correct, correct. Yeah. There's only one way I'm going to play that time machine yeah. game. Uh, let's, let's, what do you see coming down the pipe? Like, let's pull out the crystal ball a little bit. You are, you know, in prop tech, you're talking a little bit about kind of the health and sustainability side, which is interesting. Like, what are some of the trends or like, what are the things you're looking to kind of intersect with here, even the next six months or even a couple years out? Yeah. So I guess a few things, maybe on, on the one hand, the sort of commercial for what we're doing right now is I do think there's an untapped opportunity around the home. Um, taking the, Reimagining the home as something more than four walls and a roof or a place to eat and sleep. I think, you know, one of the big things that came out of COVID was we realized that the house needed to be more for us, right? We, we cared for our children in there 24 seven. We educated them there. We probably cared for our parents to a certain extent. It was a place to work out. It was a place to work. So all the work from home trends. And I think we now have realized that our home needs to be a more multifunctional space. And that's single family, multifamily, you know, multifamily may be more in the context of what amenities come with the building, et cetera. Um, but we need to get more out of our, our, the place where we live and spend all of our time. And there's an interesting stat. I think it's almost 40% of North Americans post COVID are dissatisfied with their living situation, whatever that might be. Oh, that's um, a, that's a so huge think, number. Yeah. That, 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 that's number. a wave of change. Anyway, you yeah. cut it, right? <laughs> Hmm. And, and I, when you think about it, there hasn't been that much innovation in the home, but I can tell you that, you know, from our experience on the more commercial side and the B2B side, a lot of the technology now that's out there that's in a commercial building is de-risked, it's scaled up, the cost profiles come down. I think you're going to see a lot more, this wave of a smart home, so not your smart home from 15 years ago, but wave of smart home for the future 
you know, powered by 5G versus a bunch of standards that no one could understand and everyone kind of competing to be the basic protocol. Like, I think we're going to have a lot of really interesting products that ta- that touch the home. So that's one bucket, obviously a bucket that's important to us. Um, the other area that I'm super fascinated about is commercial to, to residential conversions. Um, I really think that that's going to happen in a big way and, and, and trying to work with policymakers to facilitate taking space uh, that perhaps is not being used to its optimal potential and figuring out what is the better use. And in the current housing shortage, the better use is probably residential. Um, so I think that's a huge trend. Um, curious, just to put, just to put it, are you seeing that happen anywhere? Because I've heard of a couple of projects in Calgary. I was talking to someone the other day that was doing some of the exterior cladding for it. And he was chatting about the challenges of an old building to become a new, yeah. like, how do we make it match? But he was, I'm just excited to hear that at least um, municipalities are trying it. Are you seeing it show up anywhere in Canada more so or less than others? Well, interestingly enough, I mean, it was sort of Calgary was really ground zero for this pre-COVID. <laughs> so when the oil market rolled in 2014, 2015, yeah. And you had all the vacancy in the downtown core. The city did start to put together programs for those types of conversions, which I believe are going on right now. Yeah, um, yeah. That's that. I was at a breakfast the other day when they were talking about the exterior cladding. So it's you know it's well down the road when they're already yeah. starting to do windows and kind of reframing things. That whole scene. Yeah. yeah so, in, so I'd say in Canada, Calgary is probably the thought leader in that area because they had to go through. Okay, because I'd heard about it here, but I didn't have any. Compa- I didn't have anything to compare it to. Right. <laughs> Right, right. It's just, so there's some mm-hmm. new legislation coming out of uh, Boston, and, and I guess the the, the Massachusetts uh, Housing Association is probably one of the more progressive organizations okay. in North America, and and they have introduced uh, basically like property tax abatements and uh, accelerated permitting schedules for conversion. So governments <laughs> are starting to think this way. Yes, not every building is practically yeah. amenable to the conversion. But when you talk to uh, when you talk to contractors, when you talk to GCs, they're like, "Yeah, we understand that the plumbing stack's a problem. Got it. But here are the things that we can do. Like these things are manageable, and with better design tools, with more sophisticated equipment, with better like digital twin technology to map where that building is and what you need to do to it. I think we will. I, it will be meaningful enough, right? It's not. There's no silver bullet." to a housing shortage but but, it, but it's it another move in the right direction i'm glad so to hear like trend. what you said and then you yeah. know lastly i think it, it kind of gets talked about a lot but certainly the idea of sustainability is not going to go away um and 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 i think that there is you know very real very tangible opportunities to rethink everything about how we're building different types of structures right from the materials that go into it to how we build like why are we if you think about the concept of uh, a bunch of people running around a construction site with hammers and nails and doing the stick build and all of this thing where basically everything else in our society is built off site in sophisticated plants, generally with high level robotics um, there, that we have to move towards that direction. And I think we are um, North America is behind some other parts of the world, especially uh, Asian countries in this, but we'll get there. Well, we're, we're, we haven't seen a lot of 3D printed houses in my neighborhood, but I have seen that online. <laughs> So commercial to residential, uh, what, yeah, what's number so I three? I think that's the, probably on, on the sustainability side. Um, you know, I think everyone's talking about sustainability these days, but given the amount of greenhouse gas contribution that comes from the built environment, I mean, I think we can do better uh, in a lot of ways. Everything from what goes into any type of construction, like the actual materials themselves. And we're seeing some pretty cool ideas around, you know, recycled drywall or, or um 
panels that are built or that are made from uh, recycled sources, et cetera. Um, so anything to do with what goes into the building to how we actually build. Um, and that's generally going to be, I think, in the future, increasingly in a modular and an offsite environment. Uh, if you think about pretty much any other industry, you, you, you look at the, the world of housing and construction, you have a bunch of people running around with hammers and nails and wood, et cetera, on site. And, and it feels so antiquated when you think about it. Uh, compared to pretty much any other industry, like if anyone's been to a tier one auto plant, like there's there are humans, it's a, but not that many. It's a perfectly clean facility. There are robots doing everything. It's incredibly efficient. Uh, it's really like a marvel. Um, why are we not building homes like that? Why are we not building parts like that? And all of that is going to improve the environmental impact uh, over time and also create a better product that is more energy efficient over the life cycle of that house or condo or building. So I think that's the next, that, that phase is happening. Obviously, North America is behind where Europe is. One of the reasons that we invest in Europe and will continue to invest in Europe is because they are giving us those innovation signals on sustainability and climate that we think are key and that we want to bring to North America. And we actually, as a fund, we have brought a couple of the portfolio companies, their technologies to North America from Europe via introductions oh, and partnerships that, that we've helped facilitate. When, it, when you talk about innovations and change and the, the willingness or the ability or the drive sometimes to do things better, different, like comparing the guys with hammers running around to, hey, there's a better way to do this. What do you see the difference? Like, is there a tangible difference? We'll speak specifically around housing, innovation in that space between uh, North America and Europe. Because Europe always feels like they've had to condensed spaces like they've had other things that have forced them to become more efficient yeah i think, us, I think right? that's exactly right i mean i think all innovation tends to or real step function innovation anyway tends to come from some sort of situational challenge um you know whether that's irrigation systems as it relates to israel or whether that's the built environment within the construct of, of europe and, and and tight conditions there like we we are very fortunate in north america that we have a ton of land. We haven't had to be creative about how we build, um, but other areas have, and it, it's an opportunity for us to take those insights and bring them here faster to gain a competitive advantage against other people in the space. They're going to continue to do things the, let's call it the old-fashioned way, and, and those entities will, over time, get competed away. Um, but yes, uh, definitely that that is the case in Europe, for sure. Yeah, and, and look, they, they have tighter regulations. I mean, like, it's... <laughs> It's not just less space yeah, yeah, and there's doing other factors. more with existing space. It's that, that they have used the stick um, with a lot more force and the industry has had to adopt and, and, uh, or adapt. And we haven't quite done that here in North America. Those, those regulations are coming just at a slower pace. Well, you made the comment about, uh, I think it was Boston, around you know the, creating the right incentives, which I think were tax breaks or kind of tax holidays, and then also reducing friction in terms of permitting faster. Like that's kind of the opposite of like, what is the role of government? Is it to enforce? Sometimes it is, but all those times it's to remove barriers and incentivize the right behavior. Like, and I make no claims to know what that balance is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think the interesting point is, and I having this conversation recently in New York with an influential, influential policymaker, it's not that people don't understand that those incentives can drive change mm. in a big way, but there is a political challenge that exists, which is, you know, the public doesn't want to see a bunch of perks go to the big wealthy developers or home builders, right? Yeah. So there, so while you know that that will create 
motivation for change, you're also hesitant to <laughs> incent an industry um, that is maybe purposely dragging its feet or maybe just historically has dragged its feet. Um, why are you enriching them? And so it's a delicate balance and you need both. I think you really do need both. I think there has maybe been a little bit too much emphasis on the stick. Um, but as demographics change and as consumer preferences change, it's no, it's now just being, uh, it's now something that you have to adapt to. And it's not about a regulation. It's just about your market changing yeah. and that's healthy. Yeah. Which is the natural flow of flow of things kind of post COVID hangover the, you know, everyone, the exodus to the country, the exodus leaving the city, the work from home. What have you seen kind of hang around or that seems to be a little bit more of like, okay, this is like, to your point, this is now the way just things are and trying to take off the froth of the high and the low of those swings. You mean from a, a venture perspective or from an industry adoption of stuff? Yeah, an industry adoption, kind of things you're seeing. Yeah, like I'm venture from the perspective of, of like, okay, it was heading this way. All right, well, that leveled off. And now it's kind of tap, yeah. it's kind of sat here in the middle. So I think the point of optimism is um, that COVID really did open everyone's eyes, even within the slower moving subsets of the built environment industry that technology needs to be adopted within their business practices, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Like it was the moment in time as work from home where they were like, oh, we do need to do things differently. And it was, again, back to your point about forced adoption, like they had to change because the conditions were such that they needed a solution. And so most of the forward thinking real estate organizations, whether that's a developer, whether that's a builder, um, whether that's an investor, they are increasingly hiring heads of innovation. They have, uh, they are investing in the space and they are looking at different tools and technologies. At the same time, there's been a proliferation of options for them to look at. So they're probably a little bit overwhelmed, um, but they now have at least resources internally to evaluate things that they probably weren't thinking about in a serious way, even five or seven years ago. So that, that isn't going to go away. Um, we'll go through a period of time in all likelihood where budgets will be tightened and there may not be as much spending. There will be some lessons learned from, you know, startups that maybe you decided to work with that didn't make it through. And there will be some scars and learnings along the way. But the idea that we need to improve the efficiency of all aspects of operation and future proof them, that isn't going to go away in a post COVID world. Um, so that's encouraging, I think, for the industry uh, over the next five to 10 to maybe 20 years. That shift and that plethora of options that are tend to be more technology based than maybe what was expected, all oh, that was just the construction sector, that was the residential building sector. Is it attracting a new group of LPs to the table? Because all of a sudden there's something different to invest in than just, I'll put my money in real, you know, it'll be safe. I'll get, you know, I'll take some risks, but for the most part, I can kind of predict my returns. I'm being oversimplified there, but now all of a sudden you're adding tech to the table, which changes the whole game. You're just applying it to a very old industry. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And I think like, again, there has been a lot of new ways of thinking within these larger corporations, right? There have been a lot of corporate venture arms that have been spun off um, or spun up within the organization to drive innovation into the ecosystem. And then with the idea that, hey, if I'm going to be a user of this new technology, I might as well be an investor in it as well because I'm going to help that company create success. And so why am I not going to profit from it along the way, which, you know, always sounds good in a boardroom. (laughs) I think that the question is... Makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. (laughs) Makes perfect sense. 
but then you get you know you get your hands dirty a little bit and you realize how hard it is and what the skill set required to do it is and you and then getting through cycles where there is pullback in terms of corporate spending and you've got this team that you've spun up is not easy um, because mm. you everyone goes back to the core when times get tough. What's our core business? Let's get rid of everything yeah, yeah. that's not Stop the distractions. Get rid of the distractions. <laughs> and, and that's what we're going through right now. So um, I think there is, there's generally an increased willingness to adopt. There's certainly investment in innovation. I think that there is, I think there has been a lot of investment in CVC, which we will see if it makes it through the cycle. Okay. Um, but all sort of encouraging signs about where the industry needs to go. I think that that's the, the positive takeaway. So not, not to pin you down, but I'm hearing a sense of optimism with a good dash of realism that happens to have come in in the last couple of years. Does <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this sound yeah. a lot like cautiously optimistic, Scott? <laughs> This is probably as optimistic as you'll hear me be. Okay. All right. So we, this is a high watermark for Scott. I got yeah, it. I, I think so. It. Because I do believe like the, the vintages that we will, we as an industry will invest yeah. in over the next few years as times get more difficult are going to be some of the best vintages for creating significant returns for our LPs over time. I think that is true. Hmm. Um, okay. So I'm looking that. forward to that, but it's going to be a grind between between now and then. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Okay. We're not, we're not sipping my ties and kicking back just quite yet. Uh, Scott, thank you one for coming on too, for just like, just telling it straight. You, you, I, yeah, I like your brand of communication. Here's what it is. Tyler. Here's why, here's what I think. So thank you. <laughs> makes, I first selfishly makes for a good conversation on my side. I learned a lot and I really appreciate your willingness to say, well, here, Hey, here's my view, but this is what I think is actually going on here. Um, ground big ground break ventures.com. If people want to find out more, uh, I'm assuming if somebody's curious to get involved or, and at this point I'm assuming fund one is closed up and fund two is where you guys are focusing on. Mm. Yep. Correct. What's yeah, your, you what's your timeline LinkedIn. around? What's your timeline around fund two? Uh, the general fund cycle is probably about 12 months okay. for fundraise. Oh, and you guys are just getting, it's just getting spun up. We're just getting going. We, we officially launched in the market probably about three weeks ago. So, um, we're definitely looking for any LPs that care about innovation, that care about the home that care about getting close to consumers where they live, and that can add something sort of strategic versus financial to the ecosystem that we're trying to build. Mm. Um, that's what we're looking for. Um, but yeah, you can find us on LinkedIn. You can find us on our website. We do publish content pretty much every month. We do a sort of newsletter as well. Um, so come and see what we have to say. I think, um, Tyler, we're pretty candid in our view. I like it. That's I like it, write. Scott. I so like it. <laughs> you'll see the good and the bad. <laughs> I love it. What's the target size on Fun2? It's fifty to eighty-five million U.S. Nice. You can you can do you can do a few things with those dollars. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully, yeah. Scott, it's an absolute pleasure having you on, man. Thanks, thank you so much. And thank uh, you. yeah, thank I you might I might me. tap you again because uh, you quickly will become my go-to guy for the, for this topic. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, my friend. Anything prop tech, I love it. Thank All right, you, man. Thank Thanks you. For having me. Much appreciated. <laughs>